0: Our goal is to provide you with valuable real estate resources and to help you apply it to your own real estate goals. Welcome to today's episode of the How Did They Do It Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Eileen Prack. And today we brought on a fantastic guest for you, Dr. Johannes Urpelainen. I'm not very good at the pronunciation of I will try. You can say it, Johannes.
1: Johannes Urpelainen.
0: Urpalinen. <laughs> And he is a principal at Oasis Equities and a professor of energy resources and environment at John Hopkins University. He's a, an experienced real estate and technology investor with a nationwide portfolio of multifamily, self-storage, industrial, mobile home, and hospitality assets. He specializes in market analysis, underwriting, capital raising, and investor relations. So I'm super excited to have him on the show today to share a little bit about what he's been doing in the real estate industry space and... Johannes, welcome to the show. How are you doing today?
1: Thanks for having me. I'm doing great. How about you?
0: I'm doing great. Thank you so much. So Johannes, can you give us a little bit back uh, more of a background inside into you know, who you are and how you got started with real estate?
1: Yeah. So I'm a professor. Uh, I'm an academic by day. I teach at Johns Hopkins. I live here in the Washington, D.C. area in Northern Virginia and i really got into real estate first as a passive investor so about five years ago i moved from new york city to washington dc and i moved from assistant professor to a real professor a full professor so my living costs went down by 30 percent and my salary doubled So I had a lot of money to spend and uh, I really did not like the stock market. I think it was overvalued already back then. So I started looking at these alternatives. I learned about syndications and started making investments. And uh, I did well with those. uh, So later, I decided to start doing my own deals as well.
0: And when you were... This is all still at the same time, you're still doing your professor. uh, You're still working as a professor. Correct. So can you share with us, you know, like when you first got started in real estate, what were some of the things that you did first from the passive investing side of things? what are some of the things that were important to you? And then what are some of the projects that you are working on now?
1: Yeah, so I did a few good things and a few bad things. The bad (laughs) thing was I tried to invest myself in residential. I bought a condo here in Northern Virginia. It was a terrible deal. And I lost a lot of money on that because I did not know what I was doing. The good thing that I did was that I started learning about these syndications. I studied underwriting. I asked a lot of questions, the sponsors, uh, why are you investing in this? What is your business plan? Tell me about the market. And I started kind of educating myself and networking with other people. And that really helped because I learned how to study these deals first as a passive investor and then later as on the active side. As an active investor, I've worked on a few multifamily deals. So I'm a general partner on 92 units in Atlanta and 360 units in Orlando. My stake on both of those is very small, but recently I've been focusing on hospitality. So I run a few Airbnbs and this year I've closed on three hotels, which is my main focus this time.
0: That is pretty cool, Johannes. And this is all within five years.
1: Yeah. So I would say that... So I moved to D.C. in 2017. I started the passive investing in 2019. And on the active side, it's been a bit over a year, I would say. So my timing was interesting here because I had a sabbatical. So every six years, professors at my school, we get one semester kind of reduced obligations. So less teaching, less committees and all that. So I used that time to start my active investing career.
0: So there's so much in your background, but let's kind of like want to focus a little bit on the hospitality and the hotels that you had bought. So first of all, how did you first get started in hotels and the hospitality business? What were some of the things that you had looked for and what made this asset class attractive to you?
1: Yeah. So when I started going active, I was first working on a multifamily, but to be perfectly honest, I did not have... The traction that I was hoping for. So I was able to work on these two deals. They're very good deals, but like I said, my own role in those is very small. A little bit of equity, some asset management, not a whole lot. But I didn't have a lot of success finding kind of my own deal flow and finding a market to work on. So then I started trying a few Airbnbs. A friend of mine suggested maybe give it a try. And those I found a lot more sort of at an easier time with those. I understood them better and the returns were better. But the problem with Airbnb is the scaling, because you're buying one house at a time. It's really hard to scale that into anything significant. So then I started thinking, what would have a scale of multifamily but the cash-on-cash of Airbnb? That's hotels, right? I joined a mastermind. I joined Mike Ely's mastermind. And since then, I've been able to buy those hotels.
0: How do you even start with evaluating hotels? Where do you go to find the deals and start educating yourself?
1: That's a great question. So a key difference between hotels and multifamily is that hotels, there's a lot of deals. You know, in multifamily, because you do it yourself, it's hard to find good deals. So like you have to really underwrite 100 before you find one that makes any sense. With hotels, you can find a lot of deals that make sense. And I actually found mine online. I just went to craigslist and LoopNet and But my criterion is that I need a 10 cap rate, as is, and then with value add, I can increase the cap rate closer to 20. So that's my typical goal. Uh, That's in theory, of course, in practice, quite a bit of work. But with hotels, what you typically do is you get some market data, very similar to multifamily. You can use CoStar to get the market report, AirDNA, which is the kind of Airbnb aggregator for data, has some good data. You look at the daily rates, you look at the occupancy, and you basically use those to estimate what the returns would be. So it's not that different. The underwriting tool that I use is actually based on a multifamily underwriting tool. I just reprogrammed the Excel a little bit myself to adjust for some differences between hotels and multifamily.
0: So for these hotels that you had purchased, were they on your own or did you also bring in partners into them?
1: Yeah. So what I did with two of them is I have one business partner with whom I bought both of them. And then we brought in a few debt investors. So one thing I learned from the Airbnb is that you really don't want to bring in equity investors into very small deals. Because in the end, even if the returns are impressive and I'm kind of percentage-wise, when you realize that you're yourself making $300 a month doing this, it's a bit depressing, right? So whereas debt investors, you pay them you know, out in five years and you owe the whole thing after that. That's pretty cool, right? So that's what I did for two of them. One of them has a little more gross income, so we brought in one investor to help us. Two of us, again, another business partner as a joint venture, and then we had one investor in a joint venture, that. But so these are not syndicated. They're very small. They're too small. It wouldn't make sense to build an actual syndication with limited partners uh, for these.
0: So, for these hotels that you had bought, are they like mom and pop type hotels or are they like from a franchise?
1: These are definitely mom and pop. And these are mom and pop kind of extreme uh, in, in the sense that my sellers, I'll tell you one of them is actually a professional kind of hotel owner a very small player but still does this for a living another one is a couple who built this somewhere in the 1980s and is now retiring and just wants to get out and the third seller is 87 years old and used to play the bass for elvis so how about that these are real mom and pop operations so and we are going to run them as boutique hotels they are not going to have like any flack because they're too small nobody would give us the flag for 15 or 20 rooms.
0: How do you see the hospitality industry performing right now in today's market?
1: Yeah, so that's a great question. I think there's a few kind of things. So first of all, the pandemic, obviously, was a big problem for hospitality, and in particular for the high-end urban hotels. So the ones that really took a big hit are hotels like We have here in washington dc so we have a number of like hyatt's and marriott's where i live here in arlington virginia and they were just empty for a year right i mean there was nobody going to them but the hotels that did okay were on the one hand limited service so for example a highway motel where truckers are staying well guess what the truckers still need to drive right so they still need this. And then the other one was this kind of boutique hotels that often had like individual units not connected to other units like cabins or exterior wings where there's less of a kind of pandemic concern going. Right now, it's they're going... Overall, they're doing well. So travel demand is high still. We don't have a recession in the industry yet. But there's two things that are challenging. One is that the recession is coming and I'm sure that people will slow down this crazy travel in the next year and the second thing of course is that the airbnbs are competing right so there's a lot of airbnb supply right now so as a hotel you now have these new competitors that you didn't have before
0: and so for the hotels when you first evaluate it you know what are some of the things that you looked at that made sense to you as an acquisition for your portfolio
1: yeah, that's a really good question. So I think the first thing that you would do is, is actually a fairly simple comparison of what is the purchase price and what is the gross income potential. And I'm typically looking for something like 25 to 30% gross income to purchase. So if I pay a million dollars, I would want to make at least two hundred and fifty to $300,000. You start with that. Then after that, you look at the expenses. Is this somehow like unusually expensive, like flood zone, what is the insurance? How old is the building? What kind of capex renovations you need? And as long as you those expenses are reasonable, I would say that if you have a 30% gross to purchase price ratio, and you don't need to do like massive, like gut jobs in the renovation, you're probably make, gonna make good money at the hotel.
0: We love hosting this show. When we started this podcast, we were doing all the editing and post-production ourselves. Now, we are very excited to have this particular company as a partner of the show to do all the post production for us because it gives us the freedom to focus on the two things we care about serving you, our listener, at a higher level and growing our own multifamily business. If you are like Sayla and me, then you want to add value to others while scaling your business. A podcast is the best way to do both, and we invite you to contact Adam Adams. He can help you launch your podcast, market your show for more listeners, and take all the post-production off your plate so you can focus on your business instead of in it. Listeners of this show can get a free consultation with Adam. To schedule your free consultation, find the link in the show notes. Could I ask about, you know, typically, what does a boutique hotel typically run for?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. So the ones that I bought are actually all in a very tight range. So one of them was $620,000. The other one was $649,000 and the third was $662,000. And all of them, the number of units ranges from 10 to what's the highest, 17. So that's the range. So typically in in these kind of like normal secondary, tertiary markets, you might end up paying like 30 to 40,000 a key. If you do New York City or if you do Yellowstone, you pay a lot more than that. But of course, you make a lot more money too.
0: On a monthly basis, what is a typical occupancy for a hotel like this?
1: I would say in most markets, you're probably looking at about 50 to 60 percent, but it's quite seasonal. So, for example, one of our hotels in Arkansas is probably going to have an occupancy of 30 percent in January and 80 to 90 percent in July, because Arkansas gets very cold in January. Nobody wants to go there, but it's pretty nice in, in, in the summer.
0: So when you first purchased these properties, you know, what are some of the things that you looked at and did you have to do a lot of renovations to it? And what are some of the things that you had to account for as you were taking over the property?
1: Yeah, you definitely need to do some renovations. So obviously, if you buy without any renovations, it's unlikely that you're going to make any money because the seller is charging you too much. One of the three that we bought doesn't actually require... Much of a renovation, but there's an opportunity by, for example, creating new units. So we don't need to do renovation. We are actually going to start running like day one, that there's no closing the hotel or anything. But I think in the next six months, we will plan to expand it. The others require pretty extensive renovation. They're older properties and the previous owners did not take good care of them. So we found all kinds of interesting things when we went into them. So that's one. The other one, though, with hotels is the staging and the furnishing are also very important, right? So how much do you spend on the bed, right? Depending on what kind of a bed it is, it's a big difference. So that's something that we need to look into very carefully. And I would say most importantly, the operator. Whoever is running the hotel, that's really going to be the, the key thing because you could have the same hotel in the same place, make anywhere you know, from $50 a night to $120 a night, depending on the marketing and just the guest experience and all that. So, operation is super important. And I bet a lot of attention to finding good operators for this.
0: So, talking about the operation standpoint of things, when you close on the deal and even the activities leading up to it, what are some of the things that you have to get in place and make sure that things are going to be running smoothly when you actually take over the property?
1: Yeah. So, I think a lot of it depends on whether you are going to run it from kind of like day one continuous operations or if you are going to shut it down for a few months to renovate. So with two of my hotels we are going to shut we already shut them down for a few months. And with one of them we are running from day one. So if you have to do renovations then it's really quite simple. You set up the entities and the accounting and all that. You have to find the contractors, the people who do the work, you have to find cleaners, you have to sign the contract with the operator unless you are running it yourself. But I'm not going to run the hotels myself you have to get sales tax permits things like this and um, if you have to run from day one then it's a lot more sort of involved as an operation where you basically have to have everything ready so that you can jump in and kind of start swimming you know it's a bigger heavier lift in that sense but it's also nice because you start making money right away and in particular the previous owner likely has some bookings you can have like a hundred thousand dollars worth of income coming in day one which is really neat
0: in terms of marketing the property itself, what are some of the different strategies that you look for when you're marketing and getting the hotel itself out there for potential stayers?
1: That's a really important question. So first of all, when you start, your best bet is probably using these online travel agencies like Booking.com, Airbnb, Verbo, Hotels.com and everything. The problem with them is that they take 20% of the income. Oh, of 20%. 20% of yeah, it's really crazy. So, the game plan for a boutique hotel is that initially you do that because you don't have a chance. Like, if I go on Google and I search like a nice boutique hotel in a city, there is no way that you would see anything else except booking.com and Expedia and everything. Those guys pay so much money to Google to make sure that they're always at the top, but you don't have a chance. But Once you get going, there's two things you can do. One is repeat customers. So once they've been there once, you can give them a discount if they come back. You're not allowed to do that. The the online travel agencies actually don't allow you to give a lower rate on your website. If you do that, they ban you, and then you won't get any traffic. And then the other thing is you can try to make it like a really cool. You can have a Facebook group, and uh, you can try to get it on the like the cities tourism site and everything. So for example, next week, when I'm going to visit one of these smaller markets called Heber Springs, I'm going to have coffee with the mayor to talk about the city's economic development plans and how we can help them. That's something you would do in a small town. You would not do this if you had a hotel in San Francisco or Paris, right? But in a small town, you can text the mayor and just meet up.
0: Since it's in a small town, what are the different attributes in that town that made it attractive for a boutique hotel to operate successfully?
1: That's actually one of the biggest challenges is that this one, so we have two in smaller towns. One of them is in Heber Springs, which is an hour's drive from Little Rock. The reason why I like is that they have a lake. So it is a tourism destination. It's not quite where it needs to be. And I think it's kind of a bet on the future, but I think it could be. It's a beautiful place. And Little Rock is exploding. The population growth is super fast. So I think there's going to be a lot of like local tourism families coming there in the summer in the future. The other one is in West Virginia in a town called Elkins, which is a really cool town. It's already like a really nice place and lots of tourists come from like Pittsburgh and Washington DC, Morgantown from Ohio, and so on. And there I think it's really more about we have 5 acres on the waterfront, so it's very hard to argue with that. So I think it's going to be a nice property. But I think you're right that the big challenge with these like tertiary markets is very similar to multi-family. The buyer pool isn't exactly massive, right? So when we get this done, even if it's great, I don't know who's going to buy it. I might have to run this for a long time. You know?
0: What is the biggest challenge that you face as you were starting up running the hotel and getting everything situated in the hospitality space?
1: Yeah, really, really interesting. So... First let me tell you what I thought would be the biggest challenge. I thought that financing would be a huge problem because I had heard all of these horatory stories that like banks give you 50% loan to value on hotels and nothing for renovations, but that was not my experience at all. So I was actually able to get excellent financing for all three basically working with local banks. They're so much easier to work than the big ones when it comes to hotels. So that turned out to be easy. I think the big challenges that we faced it's really this you have to do all the renovations you have to find the cleaners all of this like this has to be like a very seamless and kind of coordinated effort because it's not like you just find a tenant and there and nothing happens you have to be there every day right so everything has to be very smooth and everything and when you buy a hundred year old building and you find that there's a basement that's flooded or something that nobody knew about literally happened with one of these hotels we found a basement full of water That even the inspector had missed that's crazy right so uh, (laughs) how do you miss a
0: pool of water
1: (laughs) it had an uh, outside entry so it was not like a kind of an inside basement and it was i think somehow buried like under some uh, plants or something this crazy thing but we just found it okay let's take a look (laughs) at this um but i like trying to do all this while at the same time paying the mortgage paying the utilities, paying the different taxes, paying the insurance, insurance is very high for hotels. It's just a kind of a nerve wracking, you know, like, cause you have to push and push and push. And then you know how it is with contractors, they tell you like, sorry, I've got this another thing and I can't get it done. So the thing that we, the solution we found to this was actually that in each of these markets, we have like one kind of contractor who's like a real rock star, And we basically told them that like, if you keep doing job, this quality this fast, there's no limit to how much business we can do together.
0: When you're looking for, you know, you talked about like the cleaners and the management staff, are those all in-house or are they like a third party as well?
1: For these small boutique hotels, they're definitely third party at this point. There's there's not enough cleaning to be done for an... Uh, actually, for one of them, we do have a couple who's staying kind of like at the property and the husband is doing some of the maintenance work for us part-time and the wife is actually a full-time cleaner for us that property has higher occupancy rate and 17 rooms so it probably has enough work for her most of the time and they're really good the previous owner had them and they're just excellent really really competent people with the others it's third parties but we try to basically find a third party who's Kind of like our go to person. But every time we have a problem, we go to the same person and tell them that please help us. And they know that as long as they do a good job, there's going to be many more jobs in the future.
0: So, Johannes, you have done so much in this over the past year. You've gone and, you know, did so many different types of projects. What's next for you?
1: Yeah. So, I think right now for the next three or four months, I'm really going to focus on the hotels. I'm going to try to force myself to stop looking for new deals, so it's very addictive, as you know. But I'm really going to focus on getting those three up and running. Because first of all, I can't afford to fail. The mortgage payments are pretty steep. And one challenge with boutique hotels is that all the loans are personal recourse. So I really have to pay these loans. <laughs> so I, and the mortgage is too much for my university salary. Would go, all, all of it would go to the mortgages. So that's not great. So I'm going to really focus on those. We're also starting a bar at one of them. So one of our friends actually moved quit his job, move to the property and he's starting a bar for us, which oh, I think wow. is gonna be amazing. So that's gonna be good fun. And then after that, I think I'm gonna to try to do two things. One is I'm gonna to try to scale up in those markets. So maybe I can buy a laundromat, right? Or maybe I can buy the cleaning business so that we can bring them in-house or I know the hotel or cabins or something. And then the other thing is find bigger properties to buy because the real money obviously is in much bigger hotels. And my thinking is that once I have the track record that I can do this with the Airbnbs and the boutique hotels, I do have some investors who have deep pockets. So with them, I'm hoping I can scale up to like 5 to 10 million properties next.
0: And how has real estate investing impacted your life?
1: It's had a huge impact in a number of ways. One is obviously financial freedom. So I actually became financially free through passive investing. My timing was good because during COVID-19, it was easy money, as anybody in real estate knows. So I made a lot of money during that time, and I don't need to work anymore. I still I enjoy my work. Like being a professor is fantastic. And doing real estate deals is also fun. So I don't plan to just you know sit on the beach for the next fifty years. But uh, I am financially free, which is cool. And then the other thing that I think is really has been a important thing for me is that you know as an academic I lived in a certain bubble. Everybody in academia is super left wing. There's nobody who runs any business or anything. So having to like deal with people who have a completely different worldview and understanding where they're coming from has been just really kind of insightful and exciting for me because you start to understand why a business owner just really disagrees with uh, an academic or a bureaucrat on, on many things. That's really been uh, wonderful for me.
0: And what is the one thing that you know now about real estate that you wish you knew when you first started?
1: That is a very good question. I wish I knew back when I got started, that there is this kind of like proven process for analyzing these properties, that you don't need to speculate and you should never trust your broker because they just want to sell. That's why I did a bad deal here, because I trusted my broker who obviously just wanted to get the commission. And now I know that you can actually do the analysis yourself. And there is a right way to do that. And if you do that, you have a good chance of succeeding.
0: And so what is the one thing that sets the successful people apart in real estate investing?
1: I'm going to go here with a bit of a cliche, which is really that you don't give up. So I started as an active investor about a year ago, and a lot of other people started at the same time, and we were almost like a cohort, you know, like 15, 20 people. And the people who did not succeed, the one thing that was common to them was that they gave up. Those of us who kept sort of banging our head against the wall, at some point, the wall gives in, you know. So as long as you're willing to keep going, I think at some point you will succeed because, you know, this is not an incredibly complicated business. It's not like you need to be the most brilliant person. You just have to be careful and work hard and, you know, be a good team player. And at some point you will find success.
0: And where can our listeners find out more about you and what you're doing?
1: Yeah. So my website is Oasis Equities. Dot com. You can also find me on LinkedIn. I am the only Johannes Urpelainen in the world, so I'm easy to find. Certainly would love to talk to people who are able to partner with me, interested in investing, who have hotel deals. I'd love to connect with everybody.
0: Well, thank you so much for all of your time today. I really appreciate it.
1: Thanks a lot. This was great.
0: And thank you for listening to our podcast today, brought to you by Bonavest Capital. We would really appreciate it if you can go to iTunes right now and leave a rating and written review.